Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. It's a, it's a worry. And, uh, you know, I saw one response, I think it was Stuart MacDonald MP, said that only Chris Grayling could lose a rigged election. It was a bit of a kind of are you being served moment, you know, Mrs Slocum's pussy. <laughs> That's true. I have a haircut almost straight after this. I've met some hipsters. Um, some local hipsters have promised that they can sort me out. I mean, I, I've actually, for this podcast, I've interviewed John McNally, the SNP MP for Falkirk. He was a hairdresser and a barber for, I think he said, 50 years before entering politics. Interestingly, he was he was in London in the 70s as a hairdresser, training with the likes of Vidal Sassoon. That's a very important message. Hairdressers in general have a very good understanding of their, their clientele. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's our regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Right, Mandy, I've got quite, I think I've got a very good Good Week this week, although it's potentially a bad week um, for John Nicholson, depending on how you want to cut it. Okay. Uh, you've probably got an idea of what this <laughs> yeah. is already, but it's yeah. uh, basically the the sight of seeing um, this, the show taken away from him, basically by his cat Rocco during a meeting of... Um, a parliamentary committee meeting. The cat walks in front of the camera, does a little dance, sticks the tail up in the way, and he has to intervene. Yeah. I think the important bit to add in there, Liam, was that it was a Zoom meeting. So so it was obviously obviously a virtual meeting. So they were all joining uh, virtually, and John's cat, Rocco, walked in front of the screen showing perhaps just the top of his tail as it moved across which caused great hilarity but yeah you just you see a ginger and white tail appear on the screen and sort of move across like a shark's fin yeah exactly and john eventually had to say rocco put down your tail um i mean i suppose the issue is um actually highlighted at the very beginning when you didn't name the committee meeting so ah, yes. a john nicholson mp goes global because of his cat but nobody remembers what important matters were being discussed, what committee meeting it was, um, and all that we know about is John's cat's tail. It was. It was one of my favourite interruptions that we've had so far. Up till now, I'd say the show's really been stolen by small children rather than cats. Um, Yeah. It was a bit of a kind of are you being served moment, you know, Mrs Slocum's (laughs) pussy. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's just it's the, it's the moment where you see their face and you think you can tell they're thinking what do i do at this stage do i intervene do i pretend it isn't happening do i just keep going it could have been worse couldn't it <laughs> it could have been worse yeah yeah, yeah it, did, it got global media attention though apparently um, yeah i mean i think um J- people in japan were broadcasting it so yeah the cat has gone global so what do you think? Is that, is that a good week for the cat or a bad week for John Nicholson? Well, I suppose it's a good week for publicity for John Nicholson and his cat. But in terms of um, was it a good week for John Nicholson and his politics? Perhaps not. <laughs> no. Um, OK, well, that's that's my first one. I've actually got another one for a good week, um, which I think you're probably going to be pretty on board with. But first, I have an idea for bad week. Yeah. Um, and that is that it's a bad week for Chris Grayling. Um, oh, God, having yeah. found himself outwitted in his attempt to become chair of the Security and Intelligence Committee. In fact, outwitted by his own party. 
quite bad being unwitted when it comes to intelligence committees, isn't it? It's a, it's a worry. And, uh, you know, I saw one response, I think it was Stuart MacDonald MP, said that only Chris Grayling could lose a rigged election. Uh, and <laughs> it was set yeah. up so that he would win it. Yeah, I mean, to be, I think probably just going back through this, I mean, it was a bad week for Chris Grayling, who didn't become chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, but probably also a bad week for Julian Lewis, who is also a Tory, and he did become the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, but he also had the Tory whip removed from him. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, that, and he, so he had the Tory whip removed for actually being successful, for winning an election. Um, That's right, yeah. I mean, in fairness, you could say it's been a bad week for Julian Lewis in that sense. It's arguably been a bad decade for Chris Grayling. Um, <laughs> well, I loved, I, have you seen John Bacow's... Um, John Bacow had a bit of a hissy fit of around it all. And he So he's also a Tory, and he accused government of juvenile bedwetting over the, yeah. in terms of removing the whip from um, Julian Lewis. And he said it was about revenge over the committee chair battle. And yeah, you said I mean, that Chris Grayling was manifestly not qualified to discharge the responsibilities because he knows nothing about intelligence or security. Well, yeah, I mean, this actually prompted me to have a look back through Chris Grayling's oh, best no. bit, if you will. Um, yeah. His first ministerial post was um, actually as employment minister. Um, he was mm -hmm. in that post for around two years, and by the end of it, unemployment had reached a seven-year, a seventeen-year high, yeah. uh, which isn't ideal. He was then promoted from that post to become Secretary of State for Justice, a time in which he managed to alienate almost the entire legal profession, as far as I can tell. He also mm. doesn't have a legal background, which is quite strange for a member of Parliament in general. Actually, a lot of them do, and usually a Justice Secretary would. Mm. After that, he um, went on to become leader of the Commons during the time that the Conservative Party split apart and David Cameron lost the EU referendum. He ran Theresa May's campaign to become Prime Minister. I mean, you can make your own mind up on how that went. Mm -hmm. And then ended up Secretary of State for Transport. Uh, I know you'll remember the, the ferry story then. Yeah. Um, they ended up paying a company for ferries for, to, they didn't to run own. a ferry service, and they didn't own any ferries at all. Exactly. Well, you can see why it was an obvious choice for Boris Johnson to be the chair of the Intelligence and Securities Committee. Um, I mean, I, I actually, I interviewed Malcolm Rifkin once, uh, who was chair of that committee. It's a very prestigious committee. He was uh, quite an effective chair, though, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he also looked the part, if that means anything. But mm. he, he told me that a character in the James Bond film, the Sky, uh, Skyfall movie, was based on him as chair of the INS committee. Um, mm which left him neither shaken nor stirred. <laughs> You've been working on that, haven't you? <laughs> I think he'd been working on it, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. I can yeah. imagine the headline. So a bit of a mixed bag in terms of a good week, bad week on that committee and the, the election of the chair. Yeah, yeah. And also, Liam, a really, really bad week for journalists. So yeah. 180 job losses to go at The Guardian. We've already heard about 60 to go at the BBC in Scotland. And the Herald um, are also losing journalists as NewsQuest mm. makes an announcement about cuts there. I mean, I think what's upset me more than anything is is the glee with which some people, uh, you know, respond to that kind of news as if it's a good thing that journalists mm. should should lose their jobs, particularly at a time when we should be really scrutinising what is going on in the world. Mm -hmm. No, I know. It's, I mean, it just it feels relentless, and I guess those those cuts that you've mentioned all come from sort of different reasoning you know some there are some news outlets that it feels like there's just kind of asset stripping going on and then you've got the guardian which is obviously run um on a different business model yeah um, 
But yeah, no, I know what you mean. And there's no getting away from the fact that the internet is really kind of central to this. And I think that's sort of linked to what you're talking about in terms of the response. You know, you see a journalist announcing that they're going to be made redundant and there are people who just, they just appear to just taunt them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like everything at the moment. It also can be split down constitutional lines, which is just bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, at the moment, um, I'm happy to say that I'm actually recruiting for a journalist. Uh, mm. And some of the responses even to that, when I announced on Twitter that, um, that we had a job vacancy, bizarre again. I mean, you know, I was asked if um, I certainly wouldn't be taking anybody from the MSM, the mainstream mm-hmm. media, um, as if we're not actually part of that. Uh, I was asked if they had to be members of the, the union. And I, I was a bit confused about that, about whether people thought it was a good thing or a bad thing to be in a trade union. I wonder um, if that's uh, that's meant to be a sign that they're part of the MSM. If they're I think that I think that's union. the case. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, not good. Terrific. No, yeah. really bad week. Yeah, I think the other thing about the Guardian uh, job losses as well that's prompted a lot of comment is that a lot of them seem to be going from the features section. Yeah. Um, and that's where you get all the great analysis as well. No, I know. I think a lot of people actually probably would be more likely to buy a paper on the weekend like a paper like that i mean i guess i don't you'll know more about it than me but the production costs will be higher too to put out that sort of supplement potentially but you'd have also thought that that's where some of the advertising was but i mean i don't know i don't understand is as you say the guardian has a very different model a commercial model to the herald and to the bbc um they are all going for different reasons but certainly with the guardian they've cited the effect of lockdown and drop in revenue advert, sorry. Mm. I mean, it just, and, and the, the thing is, and, and the Guardian have massive, massive online traffic, you know, up there yeah. with anywhere in the world. I think they were at about 12 million hits a day at one point, and they're not making money from it. So, no. you, know, you saw the same from, from BuzzFeed yeah. as well. They, were, they just had massive traffic, but no one's really managed to properly turn that into a working model. Yeah. yeah. Very sad yeah. day for the industry anyway. Uh, I do, I do have one good week to end it on at least oh, which i think cute. will make you very cheerful based yeah. on your your previous comments and that's that it's a good week for anyone who wants a haircut it is indeed I mean, well actually liam both of us have hair appointments to do that's true i have a haircut almost straight after this i've met some hipsters um yeah. some local hipsters have promised that they can sort me out and Excellent. it's got a kind of shady feel to it to be honest <laughs> i mean actually nicola sturgeon tweeted a pic of herself at the hairdressers saying the sweetest of reunions um, and I, I do think everybody, I mean, all my girlfriends are all talking about their hair appointments and whether or not they should go back to the colour that they were, whether that was a natural colour or not. Mm. So it's prompting a lot of discussion. But there's also a, a quite a serious, well, there is a serious side to it. So um, I think there's confusion, as there has been about lots of lifting of restrictions. Yeah. So you can get haircuts done as long as the hairdresser and you are carrying out various precautions like wearing face masks etc and beauty salons are going to be able to open i think from next week in scotland but this week in um, england but not allowed to carry out certain procedures so it seems to me that everything below the neck can get done but everything on the face cannot Um, Mm. and yet barbers are able to do men's beards as i understand it well yeah see i i thought that as well actually the, the i went to one place this is why i had to end up in the in the kind of hipster place the first place just didn't have any space at all um and they say they're not doing any beards and yeah. and the hipsters also say that they're not going to do any beards um which would have been more disappointing obviously if i 
had a beard. <laughs> yeah, we um, had this discussion. You don't have a beard. Well, not now, no. I mean, I, I wonder if that's why they refuse to work on it um, in <laughs> retrospect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Um, so I don't know, though, because I mean, they'll be interpreting different guidance. And I think maybe part of it is that some places are taking Boris Johnson's announcements as read for the for Scotland as well. I'm not sure. But I think, I mean, I agree there is certainly a, a huge amount of confusion. Yeah, well, uh, Monica Lennon, the MSP, she tweeted about one of her constituents who I think owns sal- beauty salons. And they had be- they had a letter that had come from the Scottish government um, saying mm. that there were no restrictions um, while other salons, including my own, uh, they're opening from next week, but they've told they can't do any facial work. So as I say, Brazilians are fine, but brows are a no-no. Um, yeah. So I'll be kind of beautified from the waist down, apparently. <laughs> um, but actually, on it, and it's a serious note, there's a lot of jobs in the beauty sector. I think um, across the UK, we're probably talking about 600,000 jobs linked to it, and it's mm. a £7 billion industry so it's not something that should be poked fun at and yet when William Ragg the MP asked about the future of the beauty sector in his constituency Boris Johnson in his usual joking manner said that he hoped one day I'll be going with him to lush beauty and uh, the backbenchers thought that was very very funny. It's funny stuff isn't it? Well Um, I mean I've actually for this podcast I've interviewed John McNally the SNP MP for Falkirk he was a hairdresser and a barber for, I think he, well, I said over 30 years. I think he said 50 years before entering <laughs> politics. Um, interestingly, he was he was in London in the 70s as a hairdresser, training with the likes of Vidal Sassoon. He co-chairs the all-party parliamentary group on barbering, hairdressing and cosmetology. And he's written to the Chancellor for, for clarity, basically, on what um, support the industry is getting. but also why there is this disparity about what they can and can't do. Um, And he he said that for an industry that's dominated by women as a workforce and also provided um, basically their services to a largely female clientele, the restrictions are just yet another attack on women. And are we going to cut to that now? We are now. So, John McNally, you've been an MP for Falkirk since 2015, but before that, you were a hairdresser for 30 years. And while obviously everything about this pandemic is a tragedy, not being able to get your hair done has become a bit of a thing. Do you understand that? Uh, absolutely understand it. I have to correct you. I was a hairdresser for nearly 50 years. So <laughs> well, yeah, I don't need reminder of that. But you're absolutely right. The, um, the hairdressing and the beauty business is probably a pretty uh, a crucial part of everybody's uh, well-being mentally and physically people like to look right and uh, you've not long learned that when you're in that business yeah. but it becomes more apparent as you go on how uh, much importance people pay to just how they look and how they feel about themselves We've seen lots of politicians posting pictures of their own DIY efforts um, is that kind of amateur approach to hair something you'd encourage? Well, I think that's probably been bored out of necessity for a lot of people, but I can assure you I have actually been managing to do some tutorials online from um, requests from various politicians and their spouses or partners um, requesting how they should be cutting their hair, where to start and how to make it look great. But uh, some of it's been quite good. Some of it's been interesting. been one or two nasty words said to each other, but uh, on the whole it's been very interesting and I understand why people need to feel better 
I understand that you gave the Transport Secretary, Michael Matheson, a couple of tips about his own hair, but then gave him quite a critique of his own efforts after seeing him on television. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a different, a different route from normal. <laughs> so, yeah, we did die. I had to advise him on what the kind of clippers to get and how to start and finish it. But I think, I think he did a pretty good job of it, in fact. I couldn't quite believe he'd managed to get it so perfect, but then it's uh, scalp reducing. <laughs> Scalp's growing bigger and the hair's reducing. <laughs> Do you, would you recommend that people put a bowl on their head and cut round it? Yeah, I tried that many years ago, but uh, it depends on the type of bowl I think you have. But some of the haircuts look as if they've had a bowl, then have, you know, how to blend it and the rest of it. And so. A mixing bowl would have been perfect, but they didn't blend in from the uh, from the start to the finish very well, I'm afraid. Would you dare ever, I'm not saying her hair looks like a bowl in any way, shape or fashion, but would you ever dare let Nicola Sturgeon know what you thought of her DIY efforts? Uh, no, I think she's actually very good at uh, maintaining her, her appearance. Her hair always looks good. It's my first and foremost thoughts when I look at anybody. I just after three years, you just start to get in the habit. I think she's been pretty good, and uh, if she needed my advice, I'm sure she would have uh, contacted me. But I think she's got a thoroughly good professional hairdresser that looks after her very well, and she's probably advised her online in their in their own tutorials. What about Boris Johnson's hair? What about it? Um, <laughs> What's your professional <laughs> opinion? I think he nurtures this look uh, deliberately, so. Uh-huh. And I think he managed to look, make it look like that. I think the only sensible thing I think I heard them saying that came from a hairdresser who had cut his hair was, uh, and I don't know if I can actually say this in public, but he did mention the fact that hairdressers were probably the best carriers of the pandemic going around. And uh, once we get back to business, I thought, well, that's probably fairly accurate because there are very few businesses that are such close contact to anybody. But as far as Boris's hair is concerned, yeah, he nurtures that image very well. There's a bit of the mad professor in there, I think, you know, to make it look as eccentric as you can. Yeah, it is a look, isn't it? Um, I mean... Well, it's unique to him. Yeah. Get, getting to the hairdressers has become a priority for lots of people. And clearly, I mean, actually, when we asked MSPs what they were most looking forward to as lockdown restrictions were lifted, a visit to the hairdresser, I think, scored a bit above even getting to the pub. I mean, what, what is it about getting to the hairdresser that is so important? It's a great question, and uh, I'm trying, trying to get your own head round about why it's so important for people. I think it's the feeling of being pampered. There's a mm-hmm. bit of careful attention, and you can talk, or you can listen, or you can get peace of mind when you're actually sitting there. And to be honest with you, Mandy, I think a lot of hairdressers, they're trusted. It's confidence, to, especially if you develop a relationship, and I think people look forward to that. And the, the actual feel-good factor of just getting up uh, after you've been attended, it just makes you feel better. And I think that's um, a subliminal message going out to everybody that you should be taking more care of your own personal appearance and appreciate the hairdressers and the barbers and everybody in the industry just what their uh, abilities are to make you feel like that. And that's a very important message. Hairdressers in general have a very good uh, understanding of uh, their clientele. I mean, you're a co-convener of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on barber, hairdressing and cosmetology? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, is that an industry that is misunderstood? Well, I think it's uh, very, very misunderstood and it's very, very, very underrated. Uh, I've been the chair of the hairdressing, the hairdressing, barbering and cosmetology industry now for five years with a view to getting mandatory registration. And um, yeah, it's kind of, when people start talking about the hairdressing industry, I don't think they actually understand the, the level of impact, the economic impact. I mean, there's something like 340,000 people employed in the business. There's over 50,000 businesses and probably more than that. Contribute around 6.6 billion, I think it was, to the economy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's underestimated. And there's a smile comes to some faces when you talk about it, like a wee pat on the head. I think I've said this before, but um, hairdressers then definitely have a different shaped head from everybody else because they keep getting these wee patronising pats in them and it's kind of as if you're doing a really good job, but thanks very much and go away and forget about you. So yes, it is. It's very much underestimated. Now, you've written as uh, chair of that group to the Chancellor looking for more clarity on what services can be offered. There is a confusion so people can get their legs waxed, but not their eyebrows. Um, and that, that leaves many of us a bit half done. Is that fair? I think it's uh, there's a bit of a gender, a gender gap, a gender divide going on here. You know, where you can get your beard trimmed but not your legs waxed. And I have difficulty finding the, the differences, although there's sectors within the sector, I would say. But generally speaking, uh, I think the female side of things is probably... Um, disproportionately prejudiced against them. And, and I mean that very sincerely, I haven't worked in industry all my life. But yeah, I mean, um, they can be um, overlooked. I mean, it's an industry dominated by a female workforce and a female clientele. And at the moment, I guess what we're saying is that some of the services, are like, women can't access them because you can't have your eyebrows. I mean, I obviously recognise men can get all these things done as well. But it does yeah. feel a bit like another attack on women. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Um, I mean, women, uh, in, this, in this instance, I would say that women going, just getting themselves looked after, but not being allowed to take the same steps as men are taking, is absolutely, totally disproportionate. And it always has been, I think, but in this particular instance, I think they should just say men and women should be able to go and get the services that require done and get it back to some sort of equal normality as quick as possible. And apart from that, it's the people in the profession themselves, as you've said, it's uh, dominated by females. They want to get back to work. Many of them are the the main or the only earner in their families. And being able to say that somebody else can do this in barbers, but we can't, I think, leaves a really bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. I mean, I suppose my beautician, um, who's waxed me for about 30 years and knows some secrets, um, they would probably say that they are, they've always taken hygiene incredibly importantly. So shouldn't, you know, they've probably always done the things that we're asking others to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, And I have spoken through many Zoom meetings since the start of the pandemic and the lockdown and listened to the hundreds and hundreds of people on the preparation and the practices that they already employ and the high standards that they employ in the business. So you'd have thought, yeah, they would have been one of the examples I would have had to say, this is how, this is good practice, this is best practice, and they should be looking at, the, in particular, the beauty industry and how to recognise how a business should be operating 
I mean, the operators in this business have had a lot of experience. They've went through lots of training at the highest level. And uh, again and again and again, through the Zoom meetings we've had, they're all ready, well prepared and understand their responsibilities. You talk, John, about um, how clients have a trust in their hairdresser, and I, I probably know that only too well. I mean, what does that mean? Have you, over the years, had lots of... I mean, hairdressers, in a way, become a bit like your counsellor. I mean, counsellor in terms of psychology rather than in your local government. Well, it's quite amazing. Uh, some of the work that we've done on the all-party parliamentary group it's about the uh, counselling with people, people that come in to speak to you. You can detect things about them. So, yeah, yeah, right, you become a, a near. And what we've been trying to do is to develop the mandatory registration for hairdressing, beauty, the barbering, so that when we hear somebody has a problem, we know how to ask the right question, how yeah. to sign them in a, in, a, in a way, in a manner that can help them. And again, because of this personal relationship, you build up over a long period of time, people just feel absolutely relaxed with you. So it is a, it's an invaluable uh, business. Uh, sometimes I think, Mandy, we're the actual eyes and ears of a community and we don't actually know what we know. And you yeah. can help many people just by providing links. It's interesting, John, I mean, because when I was with the BBC, I was making documentaries and I spent quite a lot of time in hairdressers looking for a particular salon where we could talk about politics and it was incredible as you say hairdressers seem to have just a finger on the pulse of the community is that the similarity for you with politics you know that the link i have with the community is probably my greatest strength uh, i'm very comfortable in positions when i'm speaking face to face with people i love speaking face to face to people and i particularly enjoy local community groups and then um, so that, that, that background provides you with the ability to go and speak to people. And it's interesting you say that because you can look at the high end of politics and the great discussions that go on at a higher level, but you have to be mindful simultaneously that you're speaking in a manner that people understand. And you can't overlook the intelligence of people that are just basically sitting listening to what's going on and thinking, about how does that affect me? How does it affect my community? And what can I do about it? So I've always had this idea that um, like I borrowed it from my mother years ago. She said, if you want to change the world, you get busy in your own little corner. And I think we should all be mindful of that as a way to conduct our political lives. How does this affect people on the street? Well, you mentioned your mum there. I mean, why did you become a hairdresser? Was that something that was encouraged? I mean, you were a barber, right? So, but, but why was that something you wanted to do? Um... That's a very, very interesting question. All my family before me were academics, teachers, etc. My mother used to say I was the first one to work in the family. I was the fourth in line. <laughs> uh, so what happened was, well, I, I was a pretty bad asthmatic as a, as a kid. And uh, my dad, who was a, a master moulder, worked in a foundry and I was probably going to follow him into the the foundry or the pattern making business, but you didn't see any future in that quite wisely. So we quite liked a local barber uh, in the town and I used to get and sweep the floor and do all these things from school at night. Liked the uh, atmosphere and the chat. 
And I think from there, it was probably what you'd call a natural progression into a position became available and I just followed into that and didn't have any ideas about where I was going to go, but I just quite liked it and followed it on from there. Now, you moved to London as a hairdresser in the 1970s and you worked with people like Vidal Sassoon or you were around them. I mean, would you see yourself as someone at the cutting edge of fashion? Uh, well, I was at that time, I felt, um, when I came back home after working with these places in the north of England, and I thought I wanted to go back home for various reasons, but um, I wouldn't have thought I was at the cutting edge of it, but I realised it was an extremely exciting thing with geometric cuts, new types of layering, long hair, men getting perms, all of these types of things. Oh, uh, men getting perms. That was, was that a good look? I think it depended on the person who was wearing it. I think Danny McGrain played in Celtic got a pair, but he'd only hair at the back. So it was a pre-mullet mullet, I think. But uh, there was a lot of interesting things, and the technical side of it was uh, phenomenal. So you spent a lot of time in training, training your own staff, going to various courses, up and down to London, which was the centre of the world at that time for the hairdressing business. Mm-hmm. All the types of techniques that were coming out, the different types of implements, the range of scissors all just started to change. So, yeah, it was a really exciting time. So we did some videos, we did some concerts and demonstrations like a lot of other people. Sometimes working behind the scenes at shows, you know, to prepare people for the fashion shows. It was all good. Yeah. Did you have a particular signature haircut? Um, I love geometric bobs, uh, particularly trying to do that. I thought they were the most interesting things I'd ever come across. That'll be me getting mine uh, put back in place on Friday, by the way, geometric bob. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, some people would have said my geometric bobs were uh, not intentional. They just happened that way. <laughs> well, someone turned the wrong way at some point. Are you going to go higher or lower than the other side? So... Uh, Maybe that was uh, maybe that's how that happened, but it was a it was an ingenious way in how uh, you learn how to pay attention to detail. But uh, training your staff was another education, how you get people to look at things, and uh, and and of course simultaneously running a business. Yeah, you know, just about cutting hair. You take maybe a, a lot of staff. You have to run a shop. You have to do all your VAT returns, uh, all of that type of thing as well. Do you think a bob ever goes out of fashion? I'm asking for a friend. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I've asked you that. Uh, but wait, I would say a bob will never go out of fashion. There's been variations on the bob, but the actual bob is an absolutely classic look, I would say. Thanks very much. <laughs> Just on, uh, and on a personal note, so um, it may surprise you, John, that I'm not a natural blonde. And um, right mm-hmm. now, I'm looking more like a silver fox. Do you think I should think about going back to colouring or just go au natural? Well, uh, I have never seen a picture of you, but uh, I would recommend, uh, there was a great saying during the lockdown, that wear your roots with pride, and I quite believe that to be true. But probably, if I was given some technical advice, I would say if you want to get back into some colour, probably get some lowlights or highlights very gently done just to... ease your way back into it and I'd say that's probably one of the best things you can do but there are a huge amount of better advice from your own hairdresser than I can give you at the moment and in terms of the industry as a whole what would you like to see starting to happen now I mean presumably we don't want people continuing to cut their own hair and waxing their own legs 
No, you're, you're absolutely right. And the serious point behind all this is we've been fighting for five years to have the industry better regulated. I think it goes back to something like the mid-60s when it's basically voluntary registration for the hairdressers. So there's nothing to stop anybody going out to become a hairdresser. So we're trying to develop that angle. And I think that the, um, the pandemic has probably proven that the, uh, the industry needs better regulated. There are the hygiene things that you've mentioned earlier on. The whole practice within the industry is so so well uh, looked after by itself with it, through the Hair Council, through BAPTAC, through the National Hairdressers Federation. We're all working, but hopefully we're all working towards getting mandatory registration. And that again will raise the standards. And if anything, it is, um, it is proven now that the pandemic has now proved that the industry needs to be absolutely regulated. And when we get back to Parliament, myself and my co-chair, Christina Reese, whose daughter is a, is a hairdresser, we're hoping to get a debate started in Westminster Hall. We don't get smelled at and laughed at and patted on the head to say thanks very much, but we don't think it's really needed. And we'll, yeah. um, we'll pursue that till we get mandatory registration. And, and also, I think at a time like this, lots of people have thought differently about the career path they might want to take. I mean, mm. would you encourage people to think about the beauty industry and hairdressing as an industry for a career? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's a certainly a, a, probably a career now that can last you a very, very long time. And the fact that if any woman coming into business can run their business, they can run their own local business, they can run it on a bigger scale and some of the people that I've met that are running businesses at a very high level are extremely competent. They are very professional and I would say it can last you for a very, very long time. So you can go, you can have a family, you can return to work and you can catch up uh, fairly quickly and keep up with what's going on in the world. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a, great, it's a great business to be in. Uh, I think it's probably for people that are even academic, sometimes it's underestimated the level of personal intelligence that works in this business. They are hugely intelligent, very clever and very bright. And it used to be that people were thought, oh, maybe they're not too bright, so they get into hairdressing. It's not the case. Well, I think just going back to that trust thing again, I mean, I would say that um, your hairdresser, your beautician, they are among the most trusted people that you have around you. They've got a very important job, presumably, to do. Well, you're leading me to the, the trust hairdressers more than politicians, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, probably most people would agree with that. And uh, I, I know that for a fact. Uh, having worked in a business who worked beside women who have juggled a family life, bringing up a family, looking after a home, and still working away, I would trust these people with my life. They are absolutely wonderful. 99% of the people involved in this business are great workers. They love their work and they're dedicated to it. So, yeah. They are trusted. And do you find that you do still look at everybody's hair? Or is that the first thing you look at when you're meeting someone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> is there anyone particularly in the Scottish Parliament that you really rate their hair or otherwise? I really rate their hair. Uh, I'm probably, uh, I would hate to go on the negative side, but um, I don't rate that. I would probably look at people I thought maybe needed something work done to them rather than... Um, the, uh, the excellent side of it. But most of the people that go in there, are, their hair's pretty good and looked after themselves pretty well. I particularly like Christine Graham's hair. It's always colourful and, and interesting to watch. Is there anyone that you'd really like to get your hands on their head? 
Jackson Carlaw probably, but I don't know if it would be confined to his head. He might get tempted to go around about his neck. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. Uh, he's, got a lovely, he's got a lovely head of hair, but uh, and I'm very jealous, as they say. But no, I, I think generally speaking, most of the politicians and uh, everywhere are fairly well looked after, and probably because they're in the public eye, Mandy, they, they can look after themselves quite well. But, um, so I'm quite happy with the way most people look after their appearance. Good. John, thank you very much. Okay, and now it's time for the final part of the show. This is a section which was originally called Rant of the Week. Mandy Rhodes appears to have run out of um, vanger recently. There's been very few rants, but I understand that you actually do have one this week. Well, kind of. I mean, we started this as a bit of a what's the man in the pub talking about? And I guess actually the whole face mask um, debate, mm. which shouldn't be a debate, has got me going a bit. But also, you, you, you're actually seeing pictures of men in pubs wearing face masks. I'm not quite sure how they drink their pints, but anyway. Um, mm. So, so on Sunday a week or so ago, Michael Gove, who previously said that wearing a mask could actually be more dangerous than not wearing a mask, because it might make you act in a cavalier fashion. Um, said that masks would not be made mandatory in England. That was followed a few days later by the Prime Minister indicating that they would, in fact, be made mandatory. And, in fact, they are going to be made mandatory in certain circumstances. And, you know, within all of that, and, I mean, I come from a basic point of we are living through a pandemic, which we know is spread through the air, is spread through droplets from your mouth or nose or breathing, whatever. I can't see why you could have an argument against wearing a face mask. No, it's, it's, it's a really strange one. In fact, the that that dispute you were talking about, I mean, on the same day, Liz Truss went to a Pret-a-Manger wearing a mask. Um, eight minutes later, Michael Gove went not wearing a mask. And then Matt Hancock ended up in a kind of, a, well, what's become the latest confusing situation where they basically just been appear to be trying to undermine the guy. Um, it's become a sort of odd civil liberties thing, hasn't yeah. it? It's almost like yeah. it reminds me a little bit of the way people talked about passive smoking a long time ago, um, and the idea that they could basically just go around smoking whenever they wanted. Um, I love the idea, though, that it's a civil liberties issue when people are trying to protect you from death. Yeah, I know. It's and you know, I don't know if you saw the Desmond Swain stuff in the Commons, where he said it was an outrageous, uh, monstrous imposition, was what he called it, and he should be able to go shopping without wearing one. But I mean, Desmond Swain, he's an older guy, you know, like. And. <laughs> like, <laughs> he could be wearing the mask. Yeah. To be fair, you look at. Uh, I, he said that he, he it would mean that he will not go shopping again, which is probably quite lucky because probably the last time he went shopping was about 1945. So yeah. I, I think, I don't know what stopped him shopping in between times. But it was also, also... who was outraged about the idea of having to wear a, of not, sorry, not being forced to wear a suit and tie in the commons. Yeah. So that isn't a monstrous imposition. Wearing a, a tie is fine, but wearing a face mask is an attack on his fundamental rights as an Englishman. I know. And you also have, I mean, again, you know, splitting down constitutional lines. I mean, people that would have been, um, who are, Brexiteers mm. uh, calling them muzzles, and muzzles. This is a, you know, yeah. and actually they're the kind of people that probably should wear muzzles. Um, well, yeah, and, and, I, would, I would be wary about calling them muzzles solely on the basis it implies you're going to go around biting people. Uh, and, well, I, I think, I think possibly would. these kind of people would, but yeah. it remind they remind me a little bit of the anti-vaxxers uh, in the mm. United States or those people saying that 
wearing a mask took away their liberty to breathe, which was a God-given right. Um, and I, there was a woman saying it was the same th- reason for that she doesn't wear pants. Right, right. I, I didn't quite follow that. But there's also quite a funny video of a comedian talking about why he wouldn't wear a life jacket if he was on the Titanic, because mm. it would restrict his arms. the thing i find weird is i think a lot of the people that are going around calling them muzzles are saying it's an attack on their their basic rights are the same people who seem to be under the belief that they would have thrived during the blitz you know (laughs) they could handle being bombed but they couldn't handle having a bit of material over their face i mean the thing is it, it worries me because it's very easy to dismiss these people as just stupid and and actually, you know that some of the commentators that are saying some of the things that we're talking about are not stupid people. And yet, yeah, you know, it's just provocative, wasn't it? It's needless yeah, provocative. Yeah. But you you just get back to that very basic point of what harm does it do to you? Well, you know, what I was wondering was if Boris Johnson wasn't prime minister, if he was a still a just a columnist. I mean, what line do you think he'd be taking? Well, I think we all know the line that he he would be taking. But I mean, you know, up until recently, Jackson Carlow, the leader of the Tories in Scotland, was making a bit of a, fu- uh, a play about the fact that Nicola Sturgeon had worn a face mask as if it was a publicity stunt. And I mean, there, there he was on the front page of the newspapers this week wearing a very heavy Harris Tweed face mask while about to enjoy a pint, which mm. again made me wonder how that was going to happen. It sort um, of feeds into the constitutional stuff you're talking about, aren't you? Oh, I mean, it's, I know. In one case, it's the Brexiteer um, pro-Remain argument. It seems to have fallen into those lines. And then if Nicola Sturgeon wears a tartan mask, then that gets interpreted in, in yeah. constitutional lines as well. Oh, I think there'll be symbolism about all kinds. You know, whatever you've got on your mask means something. I've actually, I've been making masks out of socks. <laughs> I actually, I tried to do that too, but it was a disaster. <laughs> I might suggest that wearing my old socks is actually harmful, but anyway, <laughs> I just say this is one occasion where I feel politicians don't actually need to do anything about this because they, they seem to have just confused the matter. Mm. So that's my rant. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.